Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you. And isn't it a gorgeous day? Now, I know the weather's been nice here, but I've been living in 10 days in high humidity. Okay, catch my drift. I wanted to kiss the ground when we got here. It was awesome, but it was a great time. Uh, you know, this happened on Friday. That's right. That's my grandson. He had his fifth birthday, and I have been saving this train for him since just before Christmas. I ordered it specially for him. You have to know that was high impulse control for me, waiting five months to give it to him because he loves all things train. And so you know how it is with your pictures of your kids or your grandkids. It's like that's my new favorite picture, and I'm sure there'll be another one after it. And that kind of ties in or not to our message. So flying home from Nashville, where we had Foursquare Convention, the pilot began our little trek before we headed onto the runway. He spoke those words that you don't really want to hear. It wasn't the, we have a mechanical problem. That's like the worst to hear, because you know you're going back in. But these were those words. He said, it's going to be a bumpy ride until we get above the clouds. And we'd already experienced one of those coming in. He says, then he paused and he said, but it should be smooth flying until we land in Portland after that. So that was good, but I really felt like that this was kind of a picture the Lord was giving me of our talk together today of what he wanted to do. Because we, I took a picture of when we got above the clouds which is what he promised us. That's how we would get out of that bumpiness. And we did arrive above the clouds. And I felt like God was saying, I want to take us above the clouds this morning to look at me, who God is. And as we do that in this book of Colossians, this Elevate series, um, he's going to help us navigate the bumpiness that's down below the clouds, where we all live from day to day. And it's by taking that high look that really prepares us for that. So to elevate means to lift somebody up for adoration, for reverence, for worship, for um, guidance as the leader of something or as the person who gets the final word. And Paul, in this book of Colossians, elevates Jesus for the believers in Colossae and for us by modeling or by reminding us of who Jesus is in the face of human philosophies, false teaching, and leaders that disappoint because they've had all of those. And this morning, we get to, with Paul, take a look at who Jesus is. And when we go above the clouds, when we go high, when we go macro instead of micro, when we get our eyes on Jesus, suddenly the things around us, the bumps in the road, the things that we're going to, the relational snafus, it changes everything. And that's what he wants to do for us this morning. I really believe it's a gift of faith is how Paul would write about in 1 Corinthians. So Paul's writing to this church that was planted by one of his good friends and ministry partners, Epaphras, in the city of Colossae, which was actually a small town by this time. The thing is, it was a small town that used to be big. It was past its heyday. It used to be a trade center. Now it was this small town, but because it had been big at one time, it kind of had an interesting makeup to it. It had this mingling of cultural and religious elements that you might not expect in some small towns that would tend to be more homogenous. And it had Paul's attention as he wrote from prison to them to encourage them and 
He was writing this probably from the prison in Ephesus rather than Rome. And Ephesus was about 100 miles away from this city. But the big news in this time, in the time that he wrote this, was that Rome had a new leader. A leader that everybody had looked forward to, thinking he was going to be the one to usher in security and peace and justice and all the good things that they were looking forward to. His name was Nero. Unfortunately, shortly after he took office, after his installation, the power went to his head. Some people feel like it literally went to his head. He went crazy. And he took them to a very dark place as a nation. And it was not where they wanted to go. Their hopes were dashed. So Paul's letter to the Colossians is his efforts to raise their sights, to view at a high elevation, to show them that the only true hope is Jesus Christ. And you ask yourself, how is this relevant to our story? The way Colossae was, this little town that used to be in its heyday, this town that was deeply disappointed by their new leader for their nation, and this church that was being infiltrated by false teachers. Well, many in our culture trust in our democracy and our governmental systems and the leaders of those systems to bring peace and justice in the way that only Jesus can. And Paul today wants to reset our eyes in case any of them have wandered afar to human leadership for the answer and reset our eyes on Jesus this morning. That's what he's going to do. So in addition, though, to these, this disappointing leader that they'd gotten, there was also these false teachers. And this was a young church with new believers. And some of these believers were getting confused, and they were also being led astray from the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And this false teaching included dualism. And this was a Greek philosophy that held that God was spiritual and good, and the spiritual world was good, but all things material or matter were bad. Now, in addition to this, therefore, if you wanted to be spiritual, then you needed to deprive yourself or avoid as much as possible all of the material world. The more you deprived yourself of the pleasures of this world, food, Ben and Jerry's, Sour cream cheddar chips, I know, marriage, <laughs> companionship, and other pleasures, then the more you deprived yourself of those, the closer to God you would be. That's what they were teaching. And that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. And now these false teachers were called Gnostics, and Gnostics combined different pieces of philosophy together. So they took this Greek philosophy of dualism that matter was evil, and they said that salvation comes from having special, secret, mysterious knowledge only available to certain people. Creating kind of a spiritual aristocracy, if you will, Amongst people, which is the opposite, by the way, of the gospel, which says that there's a priesthood of all believers. If you believe in the name of Jesus, then you are equipped in every way to know God. So this false teaching borrowed ideas from Greek philosophy and from several religions. Because it was man-made, it was changing all the time, kind of like New Age religion 
and our day. Because if you ask one person what they believe that's new age, you will get one set system. You ask another person and it will be another way. And in fact, we ask the question, so how does this relate to our context, to our culture, to where we're living today? Well, actually, we live in a culture that's filled with syncretism. That's just a fancy word for people who've pieced together religions and human philosophies to come up with their own idea of God and who Jesus is in that picture. And we know from Barna Research that most Americans still claim to identify themselves as Christians. And yet when you look at their practices and their behavior, the, over half of them live as post-Christians, functioning with their own definitions of who God is and what it means to be a Christian. Kerry Newhoff, who is a wonderful thinker and pastor today, described it this way. He said, God has become a generic term in our culture. God can mean different things to different people. And Paul doesn't want any of these young believers to go down that path, a path that leads them away from who Jesus really is and the truth of the gospel. So Paul counters this man-made religion by giving the Colossians a full-length portrait of Jesus. You know the full-length mirror? This is not a picture, a headshot of Jesus. It's not a picture of a bust of Jesus. It's not just his feet, and it's not his backside. This is full-length picture. In fact, scholars believe this is one of the best portraits of Jesus anywhere in scripture. And the big idea is this, that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus if we want to know God and be reconciled in our relationship with God because he alone is our hope and our salvation. And the big theme of the entire book of Colossians is this, that Jesus is central and supreme over everything. He's central and supreme over everything. And this is where this gift of faith is going to come in. Because, you know, I showed you a picture of our grandson at the beginning and said, that's my new favorite picture. Well, this part of Colossians that we're going to read, this first chapter, is actually my favorite picture of Jesus. It's one that I go back to time and again because this picture is hope-filled. This picture lets me know that I am secure in Christ. This picture is a picture of a God who's committed to us, lock, stock, and barrel. This picture is a picture of a God who loves us, who forgives us, who accepts us right in the middle of our story, and this is the last part of it. This is a picture of a God who is widely and wildly accessible to us. No matter what your story is today, he's not afraid to approach you. He's not afraid to reveal himself to you. He wants to do that. That's where we're going today. So Colossians 1, the first two verses I'll read first. This is Paul's greeting. He said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Okay, I honestly just love how Paul, with just a few adjectives in his greeting, was able to remind these people of who they are. He said, you're holy people. He said, you're faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. You're in Christ. So even in his greeting, he was encouraging. Even in his greeting, he's like reminding them of who they really are. And I'll tell you, just the, the soap practice in me, scripture, observation, application, prayer, that I like to do in my daily devotions. I mean, if I was soaping this, I'd be thinking about, Lord, I want to have my greetings of people. When I see people and I only get a couple sentences with them, what would I say to them that could encourage them about who they are? 
that would spur them on and not discourage them, that would lift them up, not press them down. That's what Paul does here. Okay, so let's move on. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8, we get to Paul's thanksgiving for them. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Okay, I have to just comment on this Thanksgiving because once again, Paul continues to encourage them even as he shares what he's giving thanks for them for. He said, I'm thankful for your faith in Jesus. I'm thankful for your love for God's people. And I'm thankful for the fruitfulness of your lives since you opened up your hearts to Jesus' love and grace. The thing is, I also noticed what he didn't say. You know, when he's giving thanks for him, he didn't say, what in the world were you thinking? Entertaining those strange ideas from those false teachers. What did you think? Now, that sounds like something I might say. But that's not what Paul did. And I love it that he didn't tackle the negative. He didn't speak about that. Instead, he tackled it with the positive, with what they were doing right, how their faith and their love and their hope was growing in Christ. And I want to be that kind of person who encourages people toward the positive, toward what God wants to do in their lives, instead of, what are you thinking, you idiot? No, that's, that, that would be something that I might do. Okay, <laughs> enough confessions. We're on to Colossians cha- uh, chapter 1, verse 9 here. So now he's going to offer this wonderful prayer. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I just want to mention this prayer briefly because this is one of my favorite prayers of Paul. And something that can be really helpful is to pray these prayers over the people we love. And this has been a prayer that I prayed for my husband on many, many occasions for our kids, for their spouses, and for my grandkids, and for all of you. We want to be a group of people who understand what the will of the Lord is with all spiritual wisdom and knowledge that comes from the Spirit so that we can please God in every respect. We want that. But that becomes even more meaningful if we take a look at this full-length portrait that Paul is going to give us of Jesus And this portrait that I'm going to paint for you out of Colossians is considered a picture that I tore apart into four pieces. And now I'm putting it back together, a mosaic, if you will. And there's four parts to this picture. And together, they make this full-length portrait. And the first part is this. Jesus is God. 
Colossians 1, verse 15, starts this beautiful song or poem that Paul recites. And the first words are this. The sun is the image of the invisible God. That's the NIV, the New International. In the message, it says, we look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. In the New Living Translation, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And in the New International Reader's Version, it says the Son is the exact likeness of God who can't be seen. And here's what I love. God did not leave us in the dark. He did not reserve some special mysterious knowledge for just a few people and the rest of us peons out here can just struggle our way forward. That's not how God operated. And he didn't hand us a worksheet with blanks to be filled in like mad libs about God. Okay, how many of you are familiar with Mad Libs? Yeah, they're those crazy worksheets, and on them, there'll be blanks, like this sheet that follows. And they ask you to put in a name sometimes, or a number, or nouns, or verbs, or adjectives, different, different parts of speech. And when you fill in all those things, and then you read it out loud, it is crazy. It's crazy. It's all these things that don't fit together. That's not what God asked us to do. He didn't leave us to have to figure out who he is. Here's what it says. Paul says, God did not leave us in the dark about who he is or how he relates to our world. He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus, an exact representation of his image. And he is knowable to anyone who wants to know him. And not in the everything there is to know way. Because God's infinite, right? But in that personal, intimate, relational way that we can have with Jesus, we can know God. Jesus is the exact likeness of God. And that word there for likeness is icon. And it actually has two meanings. The first is image. And you received a penny as you came in. And if you look at the front of the penny, there is an image on it. And there's actually one on the back side, too, depending on which year of penny. But this front side image, whose image is on there? Yeah, yeah. And how do you know that that's Abe Lincoln? You've seen it other places? Yes. Yes, people have described him in the history books, his height, his weight, his lankiness, his wild hair, his beard, you name it. He's been well described. And pictures, right? But we have never seen him. But we can look at those images, and that is him. We can recognize him. So that's this image thing. Jesus is the exact image of God, the exact likeness of God. There is nothing missing. But it also has this other idea to it, and that's manifestation. Jesus is also the manifestation of God. A manifestation has to do with the nature and, and being of God, expressing who God is. This contrasts with the vagueness and the mystery those false teachers were talking about that was available to only a few. And instead, he's saying with wide open arms, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen me. If you look at Jesus, you're looking at me. I've sent you my one and only son to look at, to honor, to relate to, so that you can know me in the most personal, intimate ways. So Paul lets them know Jesus is not a likeness. He is the likeness of God. He is the exact likeness of God. God is knowable in Jesus to anyone who would like to know him. So do you want to know what God looks like today? 
look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God thinks of you today? Look at Jesus. God doesn't want that to be a mystery. And you know what? Some of us need to look at Jesus more often because the self-talk in our head is telling us something completely different. Look at Jesus. What does he say about you? He says you're his dearly loved child, that you're forgiven, that that is a done deal and your standing with him is secure. It's not the, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I see a lot of people who see that as the way God looks at them. Things are going well, he loves me. The first time something bad happened, he loves me not. I have a question, he loves me not. I get the answer, he loves me. There is no he loves me not, he loves me. There's only one answer, he loves me. He is the exact likeness of God. That's what he thinks of you. Do you want to know what Jesus would do right now in some situation in your life? Look at Jesus. If you want to know what God wants you to do, look at Jesus. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that outline his 33 years of life and describe him from various perspectives. It's a rich painting of seeing a full expression of God lived out that can really help us as we decide how to treat that person, as we consider that decision. Look at Jesus. Don't look to angels, Paul would say. That was part of this false teaching. Don't look at people, however charismatic they will be. Don't look at government or leaders of government to be the answer. Look at Jesus. He is God come to us, and he has come to introduce you and me to Jesus up close and personal, to who God is. Paul, in this full-length mirror view of Jesus first of all, tells us that when you look at Jesus, you're looking at him. Not a 3D printer version, not a copy, not a man-made, piece-together, mad-lib version of God, but God in flesh and blood. And that means today, friends, that the more we get to know Jesus, the more we'll know God. God of the universe. That's pretty amazing. John said it this way in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus is God, and he shows us what God's like, what God thinks of us, and how God relates to us. And that's amazing today. That's amazing I had a friend that I got to reconnect with at um, Foursquare Convention, actually an early mentor in my life. I met him in my early 20s. He was finishing his doctorate in education at UCLA at the time. He got saved on that campus. And when he got saved, there weren't any mature believers around. It was just all of them new believers together. And so he found this one thing that he could do. He found that he could look in here in God's love letter to us. And he began to paint a portrait of who God was by spending time in his word. And honestly, across his life, Daniel Brown has made that a passion of his. That not just the pastors would study God's word. That not just the small group leaders would study God's word. That not just the volunteers volunteer leaders would study God's word, but that everybody would study God's word, would know and believe that they could get something life-giving out of this, that they'd actually discover something new out of this. And the thing is, here's what he's done in his retirement, because he's ahead of us in life. He has taken his devotional readings, and he's boiled them down to one-verse Bible devotions. He calls it commended.com. 
And he sends these out, and it's one verse, and he said, my goal is to trick people into reading the Bible. He said, because they're going to see what, I, what they get out of one verse, and they go, wow, I didn't know that was in there. I should read that. I should read that. But his whole goal has been that people would know God by knowing the portrait that God's given us of himself. So Jesus is God. That's one piece of the picture. The second piece of the picture is that Jesus is supreme over all creation, including you and me. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, here's what he says. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's amazing. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So verse 15 begins with this thing that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And firstborn, I don't know, for me, I think of firstborn in our family. And it kind of has a similar meaning because it's first in rank First in time. And what this is saying is that Jesus existed before creation. And you know this if you've read Genesis. The beginnings of our Bible start with the story of the Godhead. Together, plural, doing creation together. So Jesus existed before creation and creation owes its existence to him. Much like a painting owes its existence to the painter. Right? to the artist, and he's saying all of creation owes its existence to the artist who created it, and I am that artist. He created, he's the creator of everything we see and everything that we don't see. John 1, verses 1 through 3 says it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him Nothing was made that has been made. In other words, John's pretty clear. There are no exceptions to this. All things are under Jesus Christ. They all exist because of him. So what this really tells us is that creation owes its existence to him. And what that means for me and for you today is I exist for him. You exist for him. You not only exist for him, you exist because of him. You, not just the mass of humanity, but you put your name there. I exist for him, and I owe my existence to him. And what this means is that Jesus is not the means to an end. He is the end. He is the point. He is the apex of everything that we were created for. He is the point of your life. He's the point of my life. And this is what the difference is between Jesus being the end for us and or Jesus merely being the means to our ends. We find our purpose, our meaning, our hope in him. And friends, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with purpose in your life, with meaning for your life, 
You're missing your view of Jesus. You need to elevate. You need to see Jesus for who he really is. He has a purpose for you. Everything in all of creation was created with assignment, with purpose. You can read the creation story in the first two chapters of Genesis, and that's what you see. What he created and why he created it. What he created and what it was supposed to do. I did this so that this could happen. I did this so that this could happen. When you were born, he said, you were born, and his steps for you, his days for you were ordained before one of them came to be. Our purpose, our point of life, our point in living comes from him. And so we need to get our eyes on him. And this was really a direct assault by Paul on the dualism that teachers, these false teachers, were teaching because they said that there was a separation between the spiritual and the material universe. And what Paul's saying is Jesus is not detached from creation. And I want to tell you that this thinking, this dualistic thinking, is alive and well today in our culture amongst many Christians who see there's these spiritual things. I pray, I go to church, I sing to them. And then over here on this side, there's my job, there's my neighbors, there's my house, there's my finances, there's my body, there's all these pieces. And we say, this is the, is the natural, this is the spiritual. And what Paul's saying and what God defines definitely says in scripture is that it's all spiritual because I created it and you exist because of me and you exist for me. He's brought purpose and meaning and pointedness, direction and purposefulness to every single one of us, no matter what your story is. Can you believe the hope that's in that? Your failures do not deny God's purposes in your life. He will finish what he started you can be confident of that. You are his wonderful creation. You are wonderfully made. And whatever's happened between the point of birth and now does not negate that. And that's the hope and that's the faith that he wants to bring today by taking a look at Jesus, the elevated one, the one who is over all of us. So Jesus designed us to need food and companionship and pleasure and work and exercise and all the other things we need. But those things were never meant to be a substitute for him. They were meant to lead us toward him. And that's between the difference between seeing Jesus as the end and seeing Jesus as the means to some other end. All of creation, including you and me, we're meant to serve his will and be for his glory, his honor. The people could look at our lives and say, wow, God's amazing. I look at your lives and I say that. I hear your stories and I say that. That's what God really intended. So I ask myself, does this describe my life and how I'm living it out? Does this describe the life that I'm leave, leading my family in? That we exist to serve his will and his purposes. Not just our own crazy ideas. And that's why Paul prayed the way he did that I read to you earlier. When he prayed, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you might please him in every respect or in all ways, that you might bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of God. Is Jesus the means to an end in our life or is he the end? Is he the point? Whichever way we choose, it's not too late to change it. And that makes all the difference. 
Jesus is God and Jesus is supreme over creation and that includes you and me. But thirdly, Jesus is supreme over the church. The church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. The people who said yes to Jesus. I don't know if all of you have here today. I don't know if you've been examining the claims of Christ, wondering about who he really is. I hope today that you capture a glimpse of him and that you would say yes to him. Because it's that, receiving what Jesus did, that makes you part of his church. Not a membership drive, not signing a card. It's what you say to him. That makes you a part. And Jesus is supreme over the church. Let's read what he says in Colossians 1, verses 18 and 19. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Paul also writes in Ephesians 1, and 23, the same thing. And God placed all things under his, that is Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What's this really saying? That Jesus is our sovereign, that he is our leader, that he is the chief, that he is the guide, he's the one who governs the church he sustains the church. You know, that's not a burden that Jared and I can carry. That's not a burden that the pastors of this church can carry. That's not a burden that the volunteer leaders of this church can carry. That's something that Jesus has to carry. And he does. And he takes responsibility in that way. And then we come under him. He is elevated. We are here looking at him, being supported by him. So this union between Christ and the church is intimate and real because a body without a head is dead. A body without a head is not survivable. It's incapable of life. And that's what happens if we don't connect with Jesus. We're incomplete without that connection to him because he is the source of life for the church. We can whip up some good emotion. There are crowd tactics to help you do that. When we all get together, but that is not the life we're talking about. We're talking about the presence of God himself in the lives of people here who are genuinely worshiping him, experiencing him, looking at his word together, sharing together, asking our questions together, fighting together, working forward together. That's the church we're talking about. We are one living unit with Christ, the introverts, the extroverts, and everything in between. Isn't that lovely, introverts? You get to be a part, even though a crowd was never your thing. <clears throat> but God works it out for all of us. He is the firstborn among the dead. There's that word again, firstborn. First in rank, first in time. All it means is this, that Jesus is the first one to be resurrected from the dead, never to die again. We know that he raised people from the dead. We know that others have raised people from the dead besides him since then. But all those people died again, eventually. And they're waiting for the resurrection when Jesus comes back. But Jesus was resurrected never to die again. So he is the first in that. First in rank and first in time. And because of that, he alone is our example of what a glorified life, what a life of renewal and new creation is all about. He's our trailblazer for life. And it says that the father was pleased to put everything of himself in his son, all of his fullness to dwell in Jesus. And I love this word dwell here because it's not a rental agreement. It's not a lease agreement. The word for dwell here is a permanent ownership. 
It is not fleeting. It is not passing. He didn't just say, well, while you're there on earth, Jesus, I'm going to give you this. No, he permanently placed in Jesus all of his fullness, everything of God, all of his blessing, all of his righteousness, all of his grace, all of his wisdom, everything you could ever want from God is there in Christ, not ever to be removed. In fact, it's Paul that writes in the next chapter, in Christ are hidden all the hit treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in Colossians 2.9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What is he saying? Jesus is the leader of the church, and he's the builder of the church, and he's the sustainer of the church. And what this means is he's the one we should go to first. Not a person, not a human being, the first person we want to turn to. I have to tell you, I don't always do that. I turn to people first often. It's not that we don't need each other, we do. But this suggests that who I need to go to first, I go to him, go to the leader. Go to him with our thoughts, with our ideas, with our concerns, with our questions, with our rants. I can assure you he's much better than Facebook for a good rant. It's so wonderful because he understands me. And when I get mad at him afterwards, I have to kind of laugh because I mean, I pour it out to him what I think and everything. And and afterwards, I don't have a whole bunch of other people I have to apologize to. Just God, right? Just God. <laughs> so we need to listen to him and believe what he says because he is the head of the church. It's this Jesus, the one who is God, the one who's supreme over all creation, including you and me, the one who's supreme over the church. It's this Jesus who's reconciled us to God. And that's where we want to end with the fourth picture Jesus is the supreme reconciler. Colossians 1, verses 20 through 23, here's what it says. And through him, that is Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by, God's, by Christ's physical body through death, to present to you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amazing. Jesus is our reconciler. And what Paul tells us is every single person on planet earth was alienated from God. That alienated means literally we were transferred to another owner. That owner is Satan himself. It's the kingdom of darkness. That's the alienation. And that estranges us from God. The hostility toward God affects our minds and our thoughts. That's the word there that's used. And our attitudes, and those end up being expressed in evil behaviors. But Jesus, but Jesus reconciled us. Reconciled there. It means to change something through intensive force. And it, Jesus has changed us from being enemies with God, alienated with God, to being friends with God and forgiven by God. Lock, stock, and barrel. And in Christ, we are free from accusation. And some of us need to hear that today. Because you struggle with that all week long. 
accusations. It's that self-talk, those thoughts that cross your mind, those thoughts that put you down and put you in your place. And that's not what God's saying about you. Those are the accusations. In fact, the devil's called the accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse us. And what he's saying here, Paul's saying, no, you're in Christ. You're free from accusation and you're free without blemish. And that's a reference to the sacrificial animals of old that they used to um, connect with God about through sacrificial system to be forgiven. And those animals had to be without spot or blemish, without any defect of any kind. And he's saying, no, you're in Christ. You are without blemish. You are without accusation. And this is because of our position in Christ, not because of our behavior. Paul is trying to remind them, your relationship with God is not precarious. Your relationship with God is secure. And he's the one who secured it. Jesus, through his death on the cross, reconciled us to God, forcefully brought us back together in a relationship of love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And what Paul wants him to know is Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the one who can make us right with God. No one else can do that. Maybe today, though, you feel more like Jesus' disciples, Thomas, who um, was with Jesus, and he's called Doubting Thomas, because he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Here's what Jesus said in John 14. Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There is not another way, another person. There is not a man-made philosophy. There is not a government system or a leader of one of those systems that can bring us into right relationship with God. Only Jesus, he's the only one. He loves us today and he wants to remind us of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. He wants to elevate our thinking to look at him and from that to see our lives through that lens. Jesus is central and supreme in our experience in God. In just a minute, Marley and the band are going to be coming up, and we're going to take uh, communion today. And they're going to come up and lead us in a song. And as that, the trays are being passed, I'm going to ask you to take the elements, the uh, bread and the cup, and to hang on to them. And in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion together with a thought toward what he's just talked to us about. And communion is an opportunity to reflect. And I really think there's several things to reflect on today. You might reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It might be that today what you're supposed to reflect on is your life and how you're relating to Jesus right now. Or it might be that you need to reflect on your relationship to Jesus' church. I know you're here today in our midst, but church is more than just meeting here once, one hour a week. Maybe God wants to talk to you about that. We're going to do that together as we experience communion. represents Christ's body broken for us and many times we think about physical healing through that by his stripes we were healed and just that brokenness putting us back together and today I was thinking about something else you see we went to convention and 
at convention, Jared and I had a wonderful experience. We were reconciled to a couple that we love, that we haven't spoken with in 15 years. Now we had forgiven them, and I'm sure they'd forgiven us, but we reconciliation isn't complete until you're back together again. We had this amazing time together. You see, he's the supreme reconciler between us and God, but also with one another. Without him, we couldn't do it. And today, I'm just sensitive to maybe today, there's a relationship where you have been praying for that kind of reconciliation. Ours was 15 years in the making. It was amazing. We can do that for you. We can reflect on that, that God is a reconciler of people as well as with him. And today, maybe also what you're reflecting on is being reconciled to God. Maybe you haven't said yes to Jesus yet. And this can be your time, accepting Jesus, receiving his body broken for you. And that promise that from here on out, you're seen without accusation, without blemish. So could we take that bread together in just a minute? Jesus, we hold this up to you and say thank you. We don't begin to understand the depths of what you did, but we know that it's real, Lord, and that we are a loved, accepted, and forgiven people. And because of that, we can love, accept, and forgive one another. I thank you for my friends. I thank you for reconciliation after 15 years, Lord. You are good and supreme reconciler. Let's take his body. And then we have the juice, which represents his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, the once and for all payment that brought us reconciled to God. And I just, today again, I was just struck with the fact that a lot of times we think about us being forgiven. And I just feel like today God also wants us to think about, is there anybody we need to extend that forgiveness to? We have been forgiven, therefore we can forgive others. And that's the challenge for us. And today maybe that's what you'll reflect on. Is there anyone that you just need to say, Lord, I let it go. I let them go and release them to your care and your concern. Lord, right now we do that. We just speak the names of those people that we would need to release forgiveness toward. And we receive, Lord, your love and care for them. That's our prayer. 